This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Kia ora koutou, no mai hare mai. Welcome to It's Getting Hot in Here, where we chat with experts to learn about climate change here in Ōtotahi. I'm Molly. And I'm Emily. Join us as we go on a journey to find explanations, solutions, and hope for the future. We've got an exciting episode this month. We wanted to talk to Dr. Matthew Hughes from the University of Canterbury with his disaster risk expertise. And we thought that Matt had an interesting perspective as he's a paleoclimatologist. And what that means is that he was looking at the environment many, many millions of years ago. So right when the Earth was formed all the way up until humans were on the planet. And so that is a very long time scale. And along that time scale, he was able to look at these big shifts in things like carbon dioxide that we're really concerned about right now and temperature and melting ice caps, things that sound really familiar to us in the climate change conversation. And he was able to look at these natural cycles through the Earth's history and compare it to what we're seeing now in these climate shifts that are often dominated by human processes like burning fossil fuels to release carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Yeah, and I think his perspective from looking at the Earth in terms of millions of years, it really put in perspective the timescale of global warming and how short it really is. And when we look at the bigger picture, it really made global warming sound a lot less scary. After doing this research on the climate along these very long timescales, Matt's now shifted into his role at UC, where he focuses on disaster risk and resilience, in particular in the context of climate change. So welcome to the podcast, Matt. Dana Goto, call Matthew Hughes Takawingua. Hello, my name is Matthew Hughes. I'm a senior lecturer in the Department of Civil and Natural Resources Engineering at the University of Canterbury, and I co-direct the Humanitarian Engineering Program. I am an earth scientist and paleoclimatologist by training, with an interest in infrastructure, communities, and sustainability. I come to the climate issue largely through doing my PhD research quite a few years ago now. So I'm a paleoclimatologist or paleoenvironmental scientist by training, That means that I used geological and paleobotanical evidence to try and understand how natural climate changes influence landscapes. So as the Earth over the last few million years oscillated between dominantly cool ice age periods and then periodically warmed into what we call interglacial periods, which we've been in for the last 10,000 years or so, that has quite dramatic changes in landscapes. The tree lines go up and down, sea levels go up and down hundreds of metres, or rather about 120 metres the last time. And so that research was really me thinking about the long-term perspective on climate. And where it intersects with current issues is when I was writing the thing up and revisiting the introduction and trying to understand what I'd done 
I started to realize that against the background processes that I was trying to understand, the fundamental drivers of, of climate and the absence of human activity, that the modern era was quite dramatic. And with my growing understandings and the wider literature and other research of what was driving the natural cycles, it was quite clear that the question for me wasn't how could climate change be happening, it's how could it not be. So I guess that's where I came to this issue. And I guess in more recent times, well, even several years ago when I started moving into the disaster space, so what that means is I'm at the University of Canterbury trying to understand how natural hazard caused disasters impact infrastructure and cities. It was well recognised in Christchurch that the eastern part of the city dropped dramatically, sometimes by up to a metre in places in the coastal areas, as a result of the earthquake-induced ground subsidence. And so we had a geological instance worth of relative sea level rise. And so I sort of circled back to the climate issue, which I'd moved away from for for some years, because that's when I realised the sort of intersection between seismicity and earthquakes and, and the climate issue. And since that time, several years ago, I've now been sort of thinking more closely about what that means in terms of landscapes and infrastructure, but mainly communities as well, because kind of that's the point, um, is is thinking about how this will impact communities, and also bearing in mind that there is no one monolithic community. Communities are sort of nested, linked uh, networks of, of different sort of social networks, And so we must be careful when we talk about communities. Maybe we can talk more about that. But yeah, so that's how I come to climate issue is basically as a physical earth scientist with a growing interest in the intersection of climate with infrastructure and what that means for people. That is really cool. I love that background and that journey that you've been on. Were you studying how the climate had changed over... So you often, there's a, in the climate discourse, you sometimes hear the more denier-oriented people talk about it's just a natural cycle. So my specialty was in those natural cycles. Mm. Yeah. How do you source data from 10,000 years ago about the atmosphere? Very good question. Fortunately, we still have ice records from going back from today back into the past in Antarctica and Greenland. And so when snow settles on the, on the surface of the ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica, it's snow, it's porous. And then as more snow falls on it, it compresses. But what, when it eventually turns into ice, the air is trapped in those little cavities which become ice bubbles. And so it's a very well-established science now. It's been happening for decades. You take an ice core and you, and it actually, you can actually see the layers in it because it's annual. So you, in, a, in, a, in a freezer, in a big sort of like a frozen container, shipping container, either in Antarctica or, or shipped to somewhere like New Zealand, they slice the, the layer, melt it, and the CO2 that was deposited at the time it was made into an ice bubble is released. And so you can measure the content of the CO2 in the air trapped in that bubble. More than that, we can actually measure the parts per million of the atmosphere from thousands of years ago. Those records only go back about, the longest record is 800,000 years. There's no older ice than that, so we have to resort to other geological evidence. So that's how we know that CO2 levels that we're on now haven't existed for several million years. Yeah, and then you compare that to the modern age now and saw the extreme difference and saw that this is definitely induced by humans, what we're doing, and then you were looking at 
the Christchurch earthquakes, where we saw the land subside or, or drop, which relative to the sea, the sea level has increased. So we've, from the earthquake, already seen an increase in sea level rise. And so you've been also looking at what can we learn from the earthquakes and sea level rise and what that might mean for the future. Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, there are other people who have focused more specifically on on their research programs looking at the flow-on impacts of that relative sea level rise on um, coastal ecosystems and groundwater and things like that. My interest primarily has been around what that means in terms of infrastructure. Yeah, but I guess from a personal perspective, that this is where the climate story intersects with hazards. And those hazards can tip over into disasters in certain circumstances. What does that mean? What is a hazard and when can it tip into a disaster? So a hazard is any phenomenon that can potentially cause us harm. So in the natural world, front of mind is earthquakes, especially in Christchurch. Tsunami, which are also mainly earthquake-induced, volcanic eruptions, and then hydrometeorological events like storms and floods and heavy rainfall, hail, snow, and also intense heat waves and droughts to a certain extent as well. The point about hazards is that they can potentially cause harm. They aren't guaranteed to. Other hazards are technological or human-caused hazards. Think of oil spills, toxic chemical spills, As we saw in Japan in 2011, actually the natural hazard actually caused technological failures. And so you had these cascading events where Fukushima nuclear plant, for example, where because of the natural hazard, it actually caused a technological hazard, the meltdown of that particular reactor. But hazards, especially the natural ones or geophysical or hydrometeorological ones, are really just Earth's surface phenomena. They're just natural events that if there weren't any people in their path or there was no infrastructure in their way or there were no agricultural areas exposed, they wouldn't be hazards or or they wouldn't even turn into disasters because there's nothing to be impacted by that. So if there's a tsunami generated, for example, and all it does is is cause some, maybe even big waves sloshing up on shorelines, but no roads are damaged, no wharves or ports are damaged and no one's hurt or killed. Certainly not a disaster, it's just something that happened, a natural event. So where hazards start to become a problem is when they start to intersect with things that we care about. And that's what we call exposure. So exposure is anything that communities, individuals through to communities, through to nations, rely on or depend on. I'm also of the view that actual natural ecosystems themselves are also the exposure for us because when you think of the ecosystem services that natural landscapes provide, forested areas, other areas with their intact soils, they provide us with pure water and oxygen and things like that. So uh, in the conventional disaster field, natural ecosystem services aren't conventionally considered exposure, but I, I lump them in there as well. Now, just because something's exposed doesn't mean it's vulnerable to the hazard. And and a really good example of that would be for tsunami, for example. So if you had some several metre high waves breaking at the shore, coming on shore at a few hundred kilometres an hour, then a steel-reinforced concrete structure 
while it might be largely everything inside it and uh, all its fixtures and fittings might be washed away, the structure itself will be intact. Whereas if you know, next door you have a typical residential house, it will be obliterated and, and there will be nothing left. And so that speaks to what we call vulnerability. The flip side of that could be resilience. And so vulnerability, the intrinsic attributes of things that are exposed to the hazard that will determine whether or not or how likely they are to be negatively impacted by the event. You can extend the the term vulnerability to, to everything, basically, the intrinsic characteristics. If you think about people, then people who are in different socioeconomic or sociocultural circumstances may be more or less resistant to changes in their lives. They might be economic changes, they might be changes to their living, to their dwelling, or something like that. And so your vulnerability or resilience also applies to the individual level, through to families, through to communities, through to infrastructure, basically everything. So you have a hazard which may or may not be dangerous or could cause harm. If something's exposed to it, it may be a problem, but that will depend on whether how resistant or flexible or adaptable or resilient it is to the event itself. But none of those necessarily mean it's a disaster. But what a disaster truly is, is when some hazard event impacts enough vulnerable exposure and causes enough disruption that the normal societal functioning breaks down and the normal abilities in the emergency services and the capacity of communities to respond to those events are completely overwhelmed and would usually require considerable outside support and help to get through the initial response phases and also recovery as well. And the key point about disasters is that there's nothing natural about them. So in the disaster field, we tend to, in more recent times, stay away from the concept or the term natural disaster because it sort of comes from a pre-scientific thinking or a more of a religious thinking of acts of God and inevitability about what just happened. Whereas in reality, if you think about it, if you think about disasters in terms of the manifestation of the intersection of some natural event, but with exposure, what is that exposure? It is material artifacts, it is like infrastructure and and the built environments that communities live in that have arisen due to development processes. And so it's the different trajectories of development, and I'm talking about economic development and the associated rise of the built environment and also agricultural areas that have put those things in harm's way. And if you think about it, no one did that on purpose most of the time. It's just that many of the most productive soils and most productive areas and the most, and a lot of communities and eventually cities were located near waterways, for example, exposed to river hazards or, or, or coastal areas exposed to coastal processes and coastal hazards. But we also see in some disasters around the world that it's often the more vulnerable and poorer people that are more exposed to hazards because because of these unequal and differing trajectories of development, it often means that people who are most vulnerable to disruption are often living in the most hazardous areas. All that is to say is that you actually need a particular convergence of the natural event, the exposure to it and the the differential vulnerabilities within it, and whether or not that tips into a true disaster. It's all determined by human processes. So disasters aren't natural. Disasters are caused by development processes caused by human activity. Yeah, that's so interesting that because of the way that humans have built 
the environment, it is determining whether something tips over into a disaster or not, which is scary on the one hand, but also empowering in some ways, because it's like, well, we're the ones that have the power to make sure it could be resilient instead of tip over into disaster. We have ways that we could mitigate that. Well, right there, you've drawn the key lesson from this concept. Once we acknowledge that disasters are caused by human activity and human development, that means that we can do something about it. With the prior concept of essentially active God, there's an inevitability of sort of powerlessness in the face of nature. But with acknowledging that disasters aren't natural means that it really behooves us to try and understand more of those development and those processes that led to people vulnerable, especially vulnerable people being exposed. And it actually puts the responsibility back on us as society to do something about that. Once you realise that human agency has often placed people in harm's way, it means we can use human agency to try and ameliorate that. So it's actually liberating, but it also puts a huge burden of responsibility on us. And it's interesting in the Christchurch context, where we've essentially built in a floodplain and now seeing predicted increased flooding, and so it's up to us to have control of our exposure to that flooding. Yes, what we now know is Christchurch, or Ōtautahi, was developed in a wetland ecosystem that was essentially a a gridded street pattern designed in uh, England and then plonked down here and the landscape was drained. And what we're seeing with the earthquakes is that essentially those parts of the city, particularly that were red zoned, is essentially the landscape is reclaiming her nature, which is that of a wetland, which is sort of a poetic circling back to the original, but not without a significant amount of heartbreak and community destruction. This is a very broad question, but since we are a local podcast, we're focused a lot on Ototahi and what might happen here. So we're curious what you think the biggest risks are in terms of climate change or potential hazards that might happen in the future. I think that climate change will exacerbate or worsen existing hazards. So we've already seen subsidence, ground subsidence in Eastern Christchurch. Uh, This is now well recognised to have increased the flooding vulnerability of many areas. And it's also increased the liquefaction vulnerability. So it was liquefaction primarily that caused the process of liquefaction, earthquake liquefaction 10 years ago, that caused the subsidence primarily. And because more of the soil is now in the groundwater, it means more of the soil is now able to liquefy in the next earthquake. So it's called increased liquefaction vulnerability. So we've had increased flooding vulnerability and increased liquefaction vulnerability as a result of those earthquakes, which means in the next significant regional or even local earthquake, you would expect more subsidence to occur. Because the ground level in general is lower, it also means that tsunamis, uh, even smaller ones, or what we might sometimes term nuisance tsunamis that might not otherwise be particularly devastating, start to become more impactful simply because the ground level is a bit lower so they can inundate more ground. So the way that intersects with climate is with, not with relative sea level rise now, but with 
eustatic, what we call eustatic sea level rise, which is the sea level rise, which is driven by thermal expansion and melting of ice as a result of human-caused global heating. Yeah, so the, as, as the baseline of the sea level rises, then these coastal flooding hazards, including tsunami, will, will worsen. Other ways that we anticipate things to be worsened be rainfall events, and mainly through more intense sort of storm activity, cloudbursts, intense rainfall events, interspersed by greater drought events. So, so the east coast is already relatively dry and prone to these things. So, I think we're you know we understand fairly well now that that extra heating in the atmosphere is doing is basically supercharging things. And it will probably just worsen or exacerbate current trends. And it's a bit unknown exactly when and how these things will manifest, but that's what the science seems to be suggesting. So that's all a bit daunting, the supercharged atmosphere. What are some things we can do to make ourselves more resilient to the climatic changes? While we are already seeing many disaster events that are qu- that are quite that appear to be driven by the the heating climate, they in themselves needn't necessarily be disasters. Again, it's what's in harm's way. How resilient or vulnerable are people in harm's way? So if we get back to good old disaster risk reduction and investing in communities and their ability to be self sufficient and, and all those sorts of things, then that is a good way to address some of these changes that will be coming. So I see climate change as an accelerator, especially these hydrometeorological events, but in itself needn't be a disaster if we respond to it appropriately. I mean, sea level rise is an issue, but it's playing out over years to decades and ultimately centuries. So it's not like it's, it's racing up the shoreline like a tsunami does. It's a more slow-moving manifestation of change. None of this means that we can't actually still be living in a world where we have to respond to these inevitable changes, especially in centuries and decades to come, but actually have transformed our society, that we still have to be living with the the consequences of, of the seeds that we've sown over the last 200 years and now, but our descendants could actually be living in a much more healthy and sustainable world, despite having to still respond to those changes, but doing so in a much healthier sustainable and frankly ambitious global civilization which would filter down to Christchurch but it will start at the local level. That was really interesting when you were talking about how people are going to have to adapt to those changes and particularly in regards to those hazards that might become disasters. People are going to have to deal with more uncertainty around those hazards and just an increasing amount of them. What do you think that process is going to be like and how can we communicate to people to make it a bit easier to, to have that adaptation to the idea that there are going to be these hazards and they might be different than things we've seen before? Well, as I said before, I, I don't necessarily think that the hazards are going to change in kind. I just think that, that their intensity and perhaps frequency will alter. Good question. Simple answer is don't know. Still grappling with this stuff myself. I think what this is teaching us is is that we really need to come back to having resilient economies and communities 
because the physical world is changing. And I think what is going to be happening, and I think uh, it might not start now, but it might start soon, but I think in coming generations and our descendants, I'm talking in decades and, and centuries to follow, long after we're gone, people will look at the natural world a bit differently. And and I think we're going through sort of a, maybe I can only speak for myself, but and despite me being intellectually trained to understand that nothing stays the same and that the only constant is change in particular in the natural world myself and i guess a lot of other people are under under the illusion that the natural world despite you know weather and earthquakes we, we kind of sort of think that everything's kind of static that the sea levels you know were always perceived to, to be where they are but of course geological science tells us it's not the case and what i'm getting at is that I think in future decades and centuries, people will be looking at the world with a different paradigm of constant change. And what I fear, or maybe fear is the wrong word, what I think is that we'll probably start to see significant sea level rise occurring towards the end of the century and beyond. And that I actually think our descendants will be, for centuries, going through perpetual retreat from an ever-encroaching coast. And we don't, we don't really have a society set up to deal with that kind of thing. We're sort of on the tipping point between a world that we thought was more static and one that our descendants will understand to be very dynamic and there'll be a constantly shifting boundaries of things. And that's not something that our civilization and societies have thought about before or have had to experience. Certainly humans in the past have had to experience it, but this is the first time a global civilization has had to, to cope with it. So, Matt, how do you think Indigenous knowledge can inform how we can adapt to our changing world in the future? What's special about Indigeneity and Indigenous peoples is their in-depth understanding of natural cycles and plants and animals and the way that hydrological regimes shift and change and that therefore the way that they interact with their environment is extremely crucial and those of us who are less connected with that are missing something and we can learn from that and and we need to take that mātauranga, that knowledge, seriously. But I think the most valuable contribution, frankly, is the conception of time. And tell Māori, Mātauranga Māori, the Māori world and Māori knowledge systems and other indigenous knowledge systems around the world do think in multiple centuries and multiple generations into the future and the past. And I think that those knowledge systems are much more in tune with the long-term processes that we've set and trained. Maybe some of the problems that we have to deal with this issue is that we are thinking in such short time frames from seconds looking at our phones through to minutes, the next email we have to write, to days and weeks, you know, just our activities and our family and our work, through to what's happening at Christmas and beyond, right? I think from a conceptual intellectual perspective, most people like the idea of their children, grandchildren, unborn great-grandchildren living in a healthy, sustainable world where they flourish and thrive. I think we all used to have that, and I think those of us who have arisen in a more predominantly Western, extractive world have lost a bit of contact with. Um, But there are other ways of thinking 
that actually I think are better suited to appreciate the longer term processes that we have to adjust to. What is an upside you see from climate change? Upsides? I think as an earth scientist, I think it's making a lot lot of people more aware of their dependence upon the natural world, how we're not and never were removed from it. And, but also realising we're in this sort of paradox of we're sometimes at its mercy, but the, the actual issue itself also tells us that we also have a strong influence on it. So hopefully it means that people, in my ideal thinking, take on a sense of stewardship and responsibility for the world. And, and what I also hope is that this issue, which I do think is solvable but will be solved in quite a different looking world, means that we people are much more aware of the of how their actions now translate into the environment and lives of people who have yet to be born. This concept of the good ancestor and the concept of the good ancestor, which is a book that was published recently, really tries to get people to think now about how their life decisions, their career decisions, their family decisions, their consumption decisions have a direct link with lives that don't exist yet, but will have that link. And what I hope this moment offers people the opportunity to do is reflect on that. Excellent. Thank you. Matt, thanks for your time today. Thank you. I really enjoyed our conversation with Matt. I found that he had such an interesting perspective of being in paleoclimatology, so looking at the past, but then also planning for the future and having this long-term perspective. One takeaway I had was that there will always be hazards in the world that we have to face, but we have the power to prevent them from becoming these really large-scale disasters. That's a really important point about that we have the ability to prevent disaster. However, that also places a lot of responsibility on humans and civilization to protect people from disasters as well. I also really enjoyed the discussion about how global warming is not necessarily adding more disaster, but it is supercharging our weather system. So we're going to get more intense and frequent weather events, but there are known hazards, things that we have seen before. Something else that really stood out to me was when Matt was talking about how we have to incorporate Indigenous knowledge into our planning for the future, so this knowledge that has already been gained about these natural systems and how to deal with them and how to be resilient but also the perspective of long-term thinking. So planning for future generations that we may never meet, but keeping them in mind as we make our choices so that we leave them an environment that is healthy and sustainable and a place where they can thrive. I found a lot of comfort in talking to Matt, who looks at the earth on such a large scale and how he reiterated that the world is always changing and that global warming is just a small blip in the timescale of the Earth. 
and we talked a lot about how we can embrace change and that this isn't the first time that humans and civilization have encountered that. Overall, it was a fascinating discussion of how we both talk about and think about climate change and even the concept of change throughout time and not being necessarily afraid of this change, but preparing ourselves and our society to live with this change now and into the future. On this Spill the Tea segment, we're going to be talking about biofuels. Recently, the government announced a mandate for biofuels for cars, trucks, trains and ships to be phased in by 2023. Transport and agriculture are the biggest sectors of CO2 emitters and the Ministry of Transport in particular has has this grappling task to reduce transport emissions and so one of the tools that they're using is biofuel mandates. So it's an interesting concept that we're going to be using a replacement of fuel instead of traditional fuels to reduce our emissions. And it's important to note that this isn't the only tool, but we wanted to discuss some of the pros and cons to this mandate. First, we just wanted to explain what biofuel is. So it's sort of what it sounds like. It's a fuel that's made from either plant or animal products, so biological sources. And this is often corn, which is turned into something called ethanol, or sometimes there are products like beef tallow or even milk-related products that come from farms. And these sources of biological material are then turned into a fuel that can be put into a vehicle. And what's interesting about biofuel is that it doesn't release as much CO2 when it is burned for use in a vehicle. So that seems like it could definitely reduce emissions from transportation. I guess what I'm concerned about is the replacement of biofuels from traditional fuels is that it doesn't necessarily change an expectation in driving behaviour or expectation of availability of freight in in terms of reducing demand. The production of biofuels still creates a need to create a fuel of some sort. It's still trying to create an energy source and that will take energy from the land or from somewhere it has to be created. It would, in my eyes, be more effective to remove the energy demand in the first place. Yeah, and I think we have to consider that the emissions from this fuel source don't only come from when it's being used in a vehicle, they also come from its production. So oftentimes these sources for biofuel are being produced on fields that perhaps had to be cleared, like forests that had to be cleared to make way for these fields. And so that leads to more deforestation, which releases CO2, as well as because, for example, in the case of producing corn, you just have some big monoculture growing tons and tons of corn. And that's not very healthy from a biological standpoint, either for 
the organisms that exist there already, or for there tends to be a greater use, for example, of pesticides or nutrients for these fields. And so those costs come in as well when we're talking about the production. So any sort of costs that we think of when we think of agriculture are probably going to be applicable when talking about biofuels. Another question that's on my mind is where we're going to be growing this corn or the source of energy for biofuels. And will that mean that we're compromising other land uses like our dairy and our sheep and beef and our food production? So sometimes the the corn production can be in conflict with food production and already we're seeing some challenges in in growing food. Yes, I agree. And in terms of where that biofuel is grown, oftentimes we're seeing other countries grow their biofuels in developing countries where land may be cheaper or easier to deforest, things like that. And I think that's a really important consideration because not only is that a problem, when it comes to deforestation and taking control of land within another country, it also means that you're going to have to transport that fuel maybe from halfway around the world back to, in this case, New Zealand, and that itself costs a lot in terms of carbon emissions to move that fuel all the way back. And so I think it's important to consider where this is happening in the first place. Yeah, I shouldn't ignore the amount of energy it takes to produce the energy that we need. And there's this interesting concept called energy return on investment. So I can't tell you what the energy return on investment is for biofuel, but I know with energy sources like oil that were initially really easy to get, they had really high energy return on investments. And so it was a really obvious choice to use them. But now with different energy sources like wind, hydro, more sustainable choices, and with the oil production being harder to do, energy return on investment is diminishing. So I encourage us to think about how much energy it takes to create these biofuels. Absolutely. And I think going back to your point at the beginning maybe the answer is not to just shift our fuel source to something else and our reliance on having a fuel that is burned and releases CO2. Instead, we need to start thinking about transportation options that reduce our reliance on these fuels and hopefully eliminate them completely. And that's where more of the emphasis should go in terms of decreasing the emissions of transportation, which is really important. Yeah, and I acknowledge that for some, reducing their transport energy demand isn't easy and that we have developed systems around us to be dependent on cars and things. But I also encourage you to reflect on are there options or decisions you can make to be slightly less reliant on fuel, so whether that's shopping more locally or or trying to make a carless day or something that you can do, but also um, acknowledging that 
decisions have been made of our built environment that creates reliance on cars. I think it would be interesting to see, reflecting that investment that's going into these biofuels, whether that could be better placed to help us redesign our cities so that the infrastructure is more friendly to biking or walking or public transport, and whether that may ultimately end up saving us more on emissions than this investment in biofuels. I think the topic of biofuels is is interesting. And right now the government is under a lot of pressure to be seen to be doing something about climate change. And I acknowledge that biofuels is one of the tools in their toolboxes. But I encourage scrutiny of these different policies coming out to really have a think which ones are going to do us best for the long term and which ones are actively going to reduce our carbon emissions. That's sort of our takeaway from this whole discussion on biofuels. That's all we've got today. If you want to get in touch, you can send us an email at itsgettinghotinheerepod at gmail.com or you can find us online at plainsfm.org and on our newly established Facebook page, It's Getting Hot In Here podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Kakite ano. Kakite.